Hello, and welcome to Standing in the Stream, a podcast for and about creative people. I'm your host, John Lane. Originally from Prince Edward Island and currently based in Toronto, Monica Pierce is a composer and the co-founder of the Toy Piano Composers, an emerging composers collective. She has a particular affinity for solo and chamber music, opera, and working with electronics. Her music has been performed widely in Canada and in the U.S. She has received national recognition for her work, including receiving the Canadian Music Center's Toronto Emerging Composer Award, honorable mention. Also active in the world of arts administration, Monica serves as executive director of the Music Gallery, Toronto's Center for Creative Music, and sits on the boards of the Canadian Music Center and Music Works magazine. Monica, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Let's start by getting a little bit of a background. I am always particularly interested to go back early. Uh, you could pinpoint any moment in time that you'd like, but I'm particularly interested in that moment when maybe you knew that you would be an artist or at least a time when you were starting to realize that you had the ability to respond creatively to the world around you. So feel free to take that wherever you'd like. For sure. So when I was growing up, I started taking piano lessons, uh, like many people, when I was young, when I was five years old. And uh, probably I, I definitely had an affinity, affinity for it early and really liked it. And when I was a teenager, it kind of got to a point where I, where I thought, oh, I'm pretty sure that music is very, very important to me. And I think I want to follow this in some way. But at the time, I thought uh, that I was, I really thought that I would be a music teacher. That was kind of my, my, my thought into going to university. So when I went to university, I was, I was taking piano, of course, and uh, I was taking music education courses as well. And that was kind of my, my master plan. But then when I was in third year of university, I took a course with, um, Ian Crutchley, who ended up being my composition teacher, that was intro to composition. And I kind of took this as a little bit of, I took it a little bit as a bird course because I thought I have, I have so much work to do and I have juries and I have so much theory and, and history and all this stuff. And I thought composing would just be kind of this fun little like outlet. And I really enjoyed creative things. So I thought it would just be, you know, kind of a fun, a fun thing. But what ended up happening was I completely, I completely fell in love with it. It was, it was immediate. Um, and it was even after my very first assignment, um, I went and had a meeting with the professor and he said, Oh, you've clearly been, you've been doing this. You've been doing this for a little bit. And I said, well, no, not really. Like I maybe here and there, but you know, not, not really. And he's like, okay, I think you need to take a look at, take a look at yourself. Cause I think you might be a composer, but <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so it just kind of grew from there. And what was it about composition that appealed to you? Well, um, I guess it was the idea of, um, I guess it's the idea of creating something new, of course, is attractive. 
Um, but also I guess when at the time I would be practicing my piano pieces and I would just end up kind of really fixating on this one little bit within the, the piece of music and being like, I feel like I could do something with that. Like, I really like that gesture. And I, I feel like it, there's a, there's a whole world just in this one thing. And I would like to make it much bigger and put my own stamp on it kind of thing. And so those early pieces, uh, maybe talk a little bit about those formative years. What kind of things were you writing and what were you able to do back then? Well, like I said, I started, um, I, I took that course when I was in third year of university. So I sort of came to it kind of late in the game, a little bit, a little late. Um, so I, I wrote and still continue to write a lot for piano because being my kind of native instrument, it definitely is one that I write for a lot. Um, some of my early pieces were, well, <laughs> they, were, they were okay. <laughs> uh, but you know what? But there's still, there was some interesting things there. Like um, the, the professor who I was studying with, um, Ian Crutchley, was big into electronics. So he was able to give me a little bit of an intro into that world as well. So that was, that was really fun. And uh, yeah, definitely a lot of piano music and trying to learn how to write for the different instruments was kind of what I was into when I first started. And uh, pretty early on, too, I, I wrote for a voice. I was very attracted to, to doing that as well. There's something that uh, I, I'm remembering back to some of my first compositions and, and sort of dabbling in that world and having a feeling of vulnerability in a way that I had not experienced up until that point, you know, as a as a performer, you know, playing music of other composers, it's not my ideas. You know, I'm I'm filling the role of interpreter, but as soon as uh, you put on the hat as the creator, and in this case, I happen to be also playing the piece that I'd composed, but I remember a, a great feeling of vulnerability uh, to be out there and these are my uh, ideas that I, you know, came up with privately in my, you know, in my private space and my private headspace and, and, you know, composing is such a solitary kind of activity, but then its results are then displayed in a very public way. I wonder if you ever had a similar kind of feeling of, uh, like a feeling of vulnerability about putting your work out into the world. I think that is such a such a perfect word for the sentiment of being a composer. Like that kind of desire to be vulnerable and actually show something out into the world, I think is very, um, it's very scary and uh, it takes a lot of courage, like a very special, special kind of courage to, to, to allow yourself to be that vulnerable too, I think. Yeah. Uh, what what happened with with um, with me? I think uh, as I was sort of falling in love with composition, one of the big moments for me was when I had I, I had played a couple of my own compositions before, but one of the first pieces I wrote was this uh, this piece for piano and oboe, and I was having it performed by 
uh, two other performers, like not, not myself. And that was the first time I had had something performed by, you know, other people. And I sat in the rehearsal and they played it through. And I was just like, Whoa, I have never had this feeling before. I don't, I don't know what this is. It's, it's scary. And it's also like delightful. And it's, it was just like nothing I had ever felt before. And, um, it's still a feeling I, I get today. Anytime that I have a, have a performance, you know, when you, when you feel so close to a piece that you've written and then it's, it goes into somebody else's hands. It's, it's just such a special feeling yeah. when it comes to life. There's also something of a, a sort of a loss of control also that, I mean, you can't, put the players uh you know you can't play the notes for them they they have to do it the way they're going to do it and so you you do sort of give up a, a, some element of control as well absolutely it's such a weird thing with the control aspect right because in the piece itself you can do everything that you want to get it to be just so but then once you do that your job is done pretty much you know and yeah. then you just hand it off and then that's just part of the process. Yeah. One of the things, a uh, composer friend of mine, David Farrell, who was on the show, I, I think I even told this story when I talked to him, but uh, I played a recording of a, a piece of mine that I'd done recently, and he, he listened to it, and he, he didn't really have a lot to say about it, but he, he looked very thoughtful and, and after it was over, and he said, well, is it doing what you want it to do? And I, I never actually thought of that, uh, you know, in those terms. Uh, and I was like, yeah, I think so. I think it, yeah, no, it's totally doing what I wanted it to do, you know? And so I, I think for young composers or inexperienced composers, that that's a really good lesson and a good question to ask of, of the music is, am I getting what I want to get from the performers? And if not, then you know, it's probably not the idea. It's probably the either the way that it's notated or the way that it's communicated on the page or the pacing of it. Or, I mean, it could be any number of things, but uh, that seems like also instant feedback that you get as a composer that, that you don't, well, sorry, not instant feedback. You get delayed feedback, right? Because instant feedback would be like a visual artist that makes a mark on the page and you instantly get the the response right yeah. whereas for a composer you're you're putting it down you're thinking what it might sound like but then it's you're ultimately dependent on a translation so yeah i guess it's not immediate feedback it's what would you call it uh i don't know well it's it's kind of like um it's it's a real like self-test too because every time you do that you're like am i being clear and then you kind of like look back at the score and you're like, okay, well, this is perfectly clear to me, but I have no idea whether this will still be like, whether this will be clear on the page to somebody else too. So there's definitely like a trust thing that has to happen. And then you get feedback and, and revise and all that too. Let's visit a, a recent piece and maybe through this discussion, we can talk a little bit about your creative process and how you like to work. Sure. We were fortunate to bring you out to be a composer in residence here at, at Sam Houston State and to work with my uh, percussion group, the Sam Houston Percussion Group. And uh, you had written a piece for us called Chain Mail. And 
we were lucky to have you here to uh, for a few days to work with the students and put the finishing touches on your your piece and and I feel like I got a pretty good insight into uh, kind of you, Monica, the person and the composer while you were here. We didn't get to spend a, a lot of time together, but um, I felt like through the piece, we I, I came to some kind of understanding about, about your work. So maybe we can use that experience uh, of being here and working together and also maybe this piece as a, as a kind of way to talk about how you work. And we could talk about the piece itself, of course, but uh, maybe this would be a good opportunity to do all of that. So First, I might ask you to describe the piece, and then you could talk about how it came about, uh, why chain mail, what was it, what was the significance of that material for you, and uh, just take it, take it wherever you'd like. Sure. So uh, I ended up writing this. Uh, well, first of all, it was amazing to be out there. That was so great. I was so delighted to come out to Houston or Huntsville rather and uh, and work with the students. It was really it was really wonderful. And I'm sure I'll talk about that more, but I just wanted to to lead with that. Uh, so chainmail. Um, so when I was going to be writing this percussion quartet, I've been very into metals in in any of my sort of percussion writing and i thought it would be really interesting to do something that I, like originally when i was thinking about it i thought okay i'd like to do something that is all or at least mostly metals like i thought maybe there there could be some interesting timbres um with a lot of bell-like kind of uh contours so that was my original thought and then this coincided with my brainstorming on a larger project that I'm working on, which is uh, kind of the working title of the overall project is called Textile Fantasies. And this is a series of works um, for different instruments that deal with um, fabric and textiles as a starting point for the pieces. So when I, I had, I'd been mapping out various pieces like a, a, a piece, a solo piano piece for based off houndstooth, the, the sort of pattern and a toy piano and tablet piece uh, based on the pattern of Damask. So I was kind of, I was rolling with a lot of those ideas. And then when this percussion quartet came up and I knew I wanted to do all metals, somehow it popped into my head to look at chain mail as in, so that I could use it not just as an inspiration, but I could also use it as part of the the piece as as an instrument. And, and chainmail literally is the the metal uh, sort of linked chain armor that a that a, a knight in the Middle Ages or something would would wear. And uh, so you actually had some of this. Uh, so it was not only the inspiration for the piece, but it was also material a sounding material in in the composition as well absolutely i was brainstorming the piece and i, I didn't have chain mail at the time but uh, so i was looking into uh i was looking into like oh what am i gonna get because i i feel like i want to to uh to use it i and and use it in a tactile way so i ended up ordering this chain mail hood for the <laughs> <laughs> for the project but the thing was I didn't actually know I knew I wanted to use it in like a metal bowl situation because they're in the piece there are three metal bowls that have uh, different metallic items in them um, and I knew I wanted to use the chain mail in one but I honestly before I ordered it I, I wasn't sure what it was going to sound like 
I, I was a little bit afraid that it wouldn't be, uh, I wanted to make sure that it would still give a complex kind of type sound as well as being sort of poetic in terms of the, the piece's conception. I should also note that my my good friend, who Alicia Denberg, who is a avid punter, made the joke about chain mail as in like a chain letter. Right. About, <laughs> <laughs> about like seven times during the course of me writing this piece. And I think he forgot that he had made the pun, so he kept repeating it. But it was uh, I was like, no, 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 chain mail, <laughs> the the armor as in the armor. <laughs> Yeah, it, it's sort of, uh, if I had to describe it, I would actually, I mean, it sounds very similar to just chains rattling, you know, uh, but it's it's such a, a large amount of chains. Um, and then the way that you uh, use it in the pieces to kind of swirl it around in the bowl. So you get kind of the, the chain rattly sort of effect with also the sort of metallic scraping of the resonance of the mixing bowls or three mixing bowls, as you described with various materials inside and those play a I would say uh, you know not a super prominent part in the piece but definitely the sort of the icing on on the on the cake as as it were more so as kind of textural uh kind of element rather than a central role it was something I thought about though because when I started experimenting with the chain mail in the in the metal bowl I I wondered whether it was going to be too quiet so I thought, well, what I could do is have it amplified. It, so that was a, um, something I thought about. But in the end, I thought that it would kind of take over too much of the other things that are going on in the piece and would have make it have sort of the wrong focal point. So ended up scrapping that idea, which is which is fine. Talk about your creative process, and maybe we could use we should use this piece as an example. One of the things that I would be curious about is sort of how you, as you're composing, how you are hearing the music, uh, because a lot of composers are, I would say, somewhat intimidated by percussion because it's such a large world and. I always really enjoy the opportunity to work with composers who are interested in percussion because then I get to sort of open the curtain a little bit and say, well, you know, try this. You could try this. You could do this. And kind of all of my little bag of tricks and collections of sounds and all of that stuff can can really take on some new life with, with the composer. And in the case of this piece... Uh, you know, you and I had some conversations as you were going along. Uh, one conversation was about the vibraphone. You, you had decided to prepare the vibraphone, a la John Cage's prepared piano. So various clamps and uh, washers and different little uh, things to put in between the bars to rattle and clamps to dampen the sound and 
this was one of those things where I just opened up my little bag of tricks because I kind of messed around with this some before. And what was the other thing? Oh, the Omglocken. So we, we had a, a brand new set of Omglocken, a two-octave set, and um, the conversation was, well, we have these pitches available, and uh, I was thinking that you would come back with, you know, a set of five or six pitches that you had used, and no, you had used all of them. <laughs> so, <laughs> there, we're going to go for it. I don't know what I'll be doing the next performance of the piece. But... <laughs> no, it was, it was really great. We were we were really happy to get to feature all of our instruments, uh, and it made for, I thought it was really terrific. And you don't often have pieces that use a full uh, complement of that that instrument. And for people that don't, that are listening that don't know, an Omglocken is like a, it's like a cowbell, but they're really big and they have specific pitches. So as you can imagine, if you've got a whole... A set of these things. They take up uh, quite a bit of real estate on, on stage. Anyway, um, so, creative process. Yeah, um, so... Just getting to the thing that you said about percussion being difficult to to write, or as in composers being scared about it, um, it's definitely a scary area because <laughs> there's just so much there's so much unknown. Uh, like most composers, unless they're percussionists themselves, don't really have access to what all these instruments even sound like. Like I was, I think, telling your students sometimes when you when you look this stuff up, there might be a video there might be like a YouTube video of the the instrument, but it's not, it might not necessarily be like a, you know, it might not deal with contemporary uh, stylings or, or whatever. So it's only, it, it can only be somewhat useful. So working with a percussionist is really, you know, one of the best ways to, to get to know, get to know this. I think uh, percussion writing, I've done a little, but not a ton. And so I saw this piece, the percussion quartet element, as a challenge um, and one that I think would stretch my creative horizons a little bit. And But using some, I'm very comfortable with pitch, so using some of the instruments being pitched percussion kind of gave me a way in so that I didn't feel like, I felt like I could, I, I could have my zone, but then still play in different areas and, and learn all about uh, the different things that the piece was going to require. So uh, for the composition process for this piece, uh, my general process is I'm definitely, because of my piano background, I, I, uh, I definitely do my writing at the piano. And I just play things, gestures, and then use my imagination to fill in all the all the instruments and or, or textures or, or whatever else um, is going from from there. For this piece, I did map out I mapped out the different sections roughly, but I always find that that is only it's useful for thinking about the piece, and I I and it good for giving it a start, but usually when I'm actually doing the writing, it ends up taking a life of its own and kind of telling, telling me the different directions that, that it wants to go, uh, in a weird way. 
I mean, the the section that I wrote that's very like, once I wrote that section, I was like, oh, this this section is very important, and I know it's going to come back. And I didn't really know that until I wrote it. So, with with regards to your your kind of working process, do you? Do you sit down and and sort of chip away at it every day? Do you have long sessions of of great activity, or do, do ideas trickle in, or how how does it how does it work for you? I want to say that it's different every time, but it totally is not. It is exactly the same every time in this way, which is that I end up thinking about a piece for uh, I end up thinking about a piece for quite a long time. Uh, depending how, you know, how long the project is, but I end up kind of marinating on it for, for a long time. And then when I sit down to write, the actual writing of it is probably like, it's a few with, well, depending how big the piece is, about a month or, or two months or three months, depending on the length of the piece, usually on weekends and sometimes, uh, short sessions during the week at night. But I have a, you know, I have a nine to five job, so weekends are are my are my zone for for composing, and so I sit at the piano for usually however a few hours working through stuff, and once I get started, there it kind of has an inertia. So I once it gets going, then I keep working on it and working on it and working on it, and then uh, but I have to say my absolute favorite part of uh, composing is once I have a draft and working with edits and revising it to make it really, you know, weird and awesome. <laughs> <laughs> That's my absolute favorite part. Cause once I have all the material and I know the general shape of the piece, that's when I feel I really get to kind of stretch different parts and then do little, you know, bizarre repetitions of something or, um, just really, um, work with it to to have make it have its own personality. Yeah, great. Well, I, I think the Chainmail Quartet was a huge success. I think it's a, a great and contributive piece to the percussion repertoire, and I hope that uh, people that are listening to this show, if you're percussionists, you have access to a quartet or you have a quartet yourself, please seek this piece out. I think it's a really strong one, and uh, and more people will hopefully play it. Yeah, I hope so. Okay, so we talked about uh, a little bit about the process of, of composing, and you mentioned this idea of this whole series of textile pieces. And so the only other thing that I want to touch on here with regards to this sort of creative work is where your ideas come from. You know, for instance, how did you get the idea to do a series of pieces based on textiles? Uh, well, there are a few different elements that kind of came together, which is, I guess, typically how creativity works, you know, a bunch of things coalesce and then, you know, pow, there's an idea. Um, so with this, this idea, I, it was partly, um, because I've been writing so many, I've been writing a lot of pieces for years, but I haven't really done a larger scale project, um, that was more than, you know, 20 minutes or 25 minutes or, or anything like that. And I thought this, this concept could be a way that I could write for various different forces and still do the kind of uh, work with different performers in different places and do all that kind of thing. But, uh, 
in the aim of of writing a larger set that could work together. Um, so like, for instance, when I was thinking about this, I knew I was going to be writing a piano solo. I knew I was going to be writing a toy piano and tabla, uh, duo. And, uh, I had a couple of other things that were, uh, in the works, but not for, they weren't all immediately happening. They were happening within the next few years kind of thing. So I thought this could be a really interesting way to explore ideas over one concept um, over a longer period of time. So that was one element. The second element was that, um, and I, I don't think I mentioned this before, was the fact that it's, um, that it's taking its, its uh, inspiration from fabric and, and textiles is partly because I wanted to have a visual representation of that as well. So in each of the pieces, um, like for instance, with houndstooth, I'm imagining that there's going to be yards and yards of houndstooth fabric, probably either draped over the lid of the piano or behind the pianist. I'm not quite sure exactly. Um, and then with the toy piano tableau piece, having the damask fabric kind of, that then they're, they'll be seated. So having it kind of on the stage on the ground um, in different heights and stuff like that. So that was another element. And um, then the final kind of aspect for that particular project is because I just absolutely love pattern. Pattern is something that I, that I love to work with in my music. Um, not just, not necessarily repetitive patterns, but just, um, just unusual shapes and ornamentation. And I see that as being very connected to textiles. So I thought it could be a interesting, interesting fit there. So you mentioned this, uh, toy piano and tabla. Maybe this would be a good inroads to talk a little bit about the toy piano, which figures sure. prominently in your compositional work. How did you discover your interest in that instrument? And maybe you could also talk about the Toy Piano Composers Collective and how that came about. Sure. So what happened is when I was done with my master's, which was back in 2008, I, I thought that I wanted to kind of get myself a little like graduation present, even though I really had almost no money at the time. And so I found this, this toy piano on Craigslist. Uh, you have that in the States too, right? Right. Yeah. Um, so I found this toy piano on Craigslist and I thought, Hey, that could be a really interesting like thing to have as part of part of my collection. I had heard it before. I'd actually heard it in like concert music a couple of times, pretty rarely. But I thought that could be something really interesting and who knows, maybe I'll write a piece for it or maybe I'll just kind of like, you know, use it in some electronic stuff or, or whatever. So I, I, I got that. And then at the same time, I was in conversations with my friend Chris Thornborough about the idea of starting a composer collective and a concert series. And we wanted to do something that was going to be pretty a little bit different than the new music scene in Toronto at the time. It was a, kind of a different, uh, different scene at that time. It's, it's different now, but uh, we wanted to do something that was a little bit more playful, uh, a little bit uh, very imaginative and not necessarily as academic as some of the new music concerts that we had been to up until that point. And so those two elements, getting the toy piano and then this starting the collective kind of 
coalesced and then we decided to call it the toy piano composers and really have the toy piano as often a featured instrument but more so as a symbol for for the group to kind of play off of Do the pieces that this collective work on all have to have toy piano as a component in the piece? Is that sort of part of the part of the deal? No, definitely not. I think some of them have never even written, written for a toy piano. <laughs> but most of the, I mean, like the first concert that we did was two pianos and two toy pianos. So everybody kind of wrote for that configuration. But since then we've, some of the, some of the concerts have had toy pianos, some of them have not, but it has been like a continual thread throughout, but more so it's, it's a symbol for the group. And one that's really carried us pretty far, except for the fact that people do often think that we all play toy pianos and that's okay that they think that, that, and then they come to a concert and then they realize that we're about a lot of things. I'm also interested, you mentioned in our correspondences before the show, that you might want to talk about your work in the genre of opera. And so I would be interested to hear your take on that and what you're working on currently. I would love to. I love opera. Opera is so fun. Uh, so I started working in, uh, I started working with opera back in 2011, and I wrote this piece for... Uh, for a toy piano composer's concert called Opera Scenesters. And the piece that I wrote was called Cake, and it was all about a, a wedding cake baker and a bride who was trying to pick out her her wedding cake, and she's being very fussy, and uh, it, it was a comedy. And after I wrote that, uh, I kind of got bit by the opera bug, so I've I've written several since then. Um, the largest one that I've written was um, Etiquette, which was based off the life of Emily Post, and it features um, Dorothy Parker as another character in it as well. So kind of set in 19, the 1920s, and uh, it uh, kind of deals with themes of what etiquette can do for society in terms of can it do anything? Does it do nothing? We don't know. So it deals a little bit with morality in that way. And then also deals with the complexity of female friendships as well, because there's a, a scene with Emily Post and Nancy Astor, who is a, a, a friend of hers. And they kind of, they have a very interesting dynamic that's pretty uh, uh, revealing in that way about female friendship. So, but my project that I'm about to start working on right now is a 
is an opera for the Bicycle Opera Project, which is a Toronto Toronto group. And it is, uh, I don't even know if I want to, no, I do want to give it away a little bit. It's, it's about, I'll, I'll just say a little intro about it, which is that it's about this woman who is biking home and she's trying to make a very difficult decision. And as she's having this decision, she's having all these sort of like flashbacks and dreams about when she first met her partner. So I'm really looking forward to writing that. Wow. Sounds fascinating. So the Toronto Bicycle Opera, what what is this again? It's the Bicycle Opera Project. And they are based in Toronto. And they actually tour around Ontario on bicycles. And they, they premiere and perform Canadian operas. Amazing. in English. So it's really, they perform it in many different places all around Ontario, kind of as a way to break down barriers um, uh, to get opera out to more people. And they do a fantastic job. Amazing. Amazing. Hi, everyone. Sorry to interrupt the show. I just wanted to drop in and ask that uh, if you are listening on iTunes, please do me a favor, go back and leave a rating or a review. It helps people find and follow the show. I would be interested to hear about your work in arts administration and your job at the Music Gallery. We talked a little bit about that when you were here and what kind of work uh, you do that, that is able to kind of support your creative work, but I'd definitely be interested to hear about your work at the Music Gallery. Absolutely. So I started at the Music Gallery in 2013, and I was hired as the executive director, which was, I could I still sort of can't believe it, but it's, it's happened, and that's my job. So what I do there, it's, um, it's called Toronto's, or the tagline is Toronto's Center for Creative Music, and we run a concert series of experimental music that spans uh, quite quite a lot of genres. Like there's some contemporary classical, there's very experimental uh, jazz and improvisation. There's um, sort of more like music from all around the world, and then um, then there's more adventurous pop music as well. So there's these kind of four four main genres but everything kind of intermixes um and there's just really interesting concerts that that happen there but it's also a venue so people rent it and they put on their own concerts there as well uh so there's just like as far as interesting music that comes out of toronto it's just one of my favorite venues in the city and not just because i work there so that's what the organization does. What I do as a executive director is um, I do fundraising and grants and I help, you know, manage the staff and uh, general problem solver of things. <laughs> I do. And making sure people are happy and they get paid. Yeah, that's great. What, that's kind of what I do. Great. Sounds wonderful. When we hosted you here, I had the idea and your the concert that you were on and, and during your visit here was sort of the culmination of this idea. I had the idea a while back to do a whole concert of music by women composers. 
and I had I've had the idea for a long time, but I was always a little I wasn't sure how that was gonna play, how that was gonna work because, you know, I'm a guy, and uh, and I was thinking particularly about putting together a program of international uh, emerging and established women composers, and since I'm a white guy, I, I didn't know that this was the right territory for me to be going into uh, as a sort of artistic curation of this kind of thing. However, I, I articulated it for myself uh, only just a few, you know, a few days before this concert was going to happen where I articulated it as a desire to bring this to my students. So the idea for this concert actually came by taking a look at the students who are coming to school here. And I, I, I got the courage to do it uh, by, by thinking about, uh, about them and what kinds of music they were exposed to and what ideas I could bring to the table. And so I looked around. Uh, no one else seemed to be doing a concert of all... Uh, women composers, so I, I seemed like the invitation was was wide open for me to go ahead and do it. And before I pulled the trigger on this thing, I, I ran it by my wife, and she she gave me the thumbs up. She said, go for it. Sounds excellent. Uh, many of my female colleagues in the percussion world, I, I ran by them. They all gave me the thumbs up. And then I came to the students, and I said, here's this idea that I have and I specifically came to the female students first, and, and they all gave me the thumbs up. So I said, okay, well, then we're going to go for it. Uh, yeah. The only sort of uh, criticism that I got along the way was, and I don't even remember now who, who it was, but they said, well, why do you have to have a whole concert of women composers? Why can't you just always include women composers on your program? And I thought, well, um, that's a really valid argument uh, and an observation, and I should do that. I should always pay attention to that because I think nine times out of ten, people that are curating a, a concert like this at a, at a university or even in the in the real professional world, they just might. I don't know. Maybe it's just something that's they're not a, not aware of. Or I think it's it's like you. Um, it is definitely an awareness thing because I. As a, as a female composer and hyper probably too i'm too aware of it if i go to a, a program of of contemporary classical music especially and there's not one women composer on it sometimes i'm just like you know it's like why not like it feels like really if if you have a you have a program of like seven or eight pieces you really couldn't find like one piece by a woman composer not that you have to have it as a, a special thing but just looking at all the music that's being written you know to have it more more balanced i think would be a very good thing yeah one one thing that i remember i mentioned to you while i was there too was that um especially when the, the students are are in university if they haven't released really, I really wanted to make sure that I was there in person for the performance because it's it's important for them to be able to to play music by you know all, all genders and, and and all that but it's also important for them to actually see a real live 
you know, composer in general, but then also a real live, you know, female composer and see, yes, this is a thing. This is something that, this is something that happens out in the world and it's, it's great. Yeah. You know, when I, when I looked at the, at the music that it, particularly these students, most of the students at this university or, you know, first generation college students or from lower socioeconomic backgrounds. And when I just look at the kind of music that they're exposed to and when I go to concerts and happen by the practice rooms and hear them practicing Mozart and Brahms and Bach cello suites and, you know, the orchestras playing Beethoven and all of that is fantastic and, and right on and what, you know, what happens in uh, music schools all over the country. Uh, and, but by and large, the music that they're exposed to is, you know, uh, largely or predominantly composed by male composers, Mm -hmm. predominantly European and predominantly dead. (laughs) So, so I wanted to look at those three things. Okay. What if we did, instead of male, we did female. If we did, instead of European composers, we did anywhere else, uh, not necessarily American, but, you know, um, looking at the international uh, world of composers mm-hmm. and living, th- those three things. And so I, you know, I, so I went on a search and I found more music, the, more interesting music than I could possibly put on one concert. So I, I'm going to have to have, you know, part two <laughs> uh, down the road at some point, but uh there's just so much interesting music being composed and it's hard to kind of sift through, to be honest with you. Um, totally. You know, and like once you, you may not have been aware of, or just people in general might not be aware of all the composers that you were able to find, but now you have all this, you have all this music that you know about now and you're aware of it. And, you know, you can make your wonderful curatorial, you know, decisions based on all this research you did, which I think is, is amazing. Yeah. There were, there were definitely some gems to have come out of this, this search. I mean, the, the opportunity to get to work with you and, and to make a a premiere, a new piece and have the students, as you said, work directly with you. They could see a real live uh, composer who is also happens to be a woman, but uh, you know, the, the chance to, to work side by side like that is just a really good experience for them. Um, do you, yeah, I was going to say, do you have anything else to say about this sort of gender, gender issue? in music composition? Yeah, well, it relates to what what you just mentioned about being able to see a, you know, real live person because it's something that I've talked to with other with other female composers about the fact that if you're not seeing uh, you know, if you're not seeing people succeed as in that role, then it doesn't really look like a viable career option. <laughs> so it's this problem of like where sometimes people are like well, how, like, where are all the, you know, where are all the women composers? And there are a lot of them. But if they're, if they're not seeing someone, um, you know, getting a big orchestral premiere, or if they're not seeing them having a, a main stage opera or, or whatever, then especially the younger generation, is if they're not seeing that, then the it, it looks like it's not really a thing. And I mean, you may know that it's that it's a thing. But if you're not seeing it, there's just something that just doesn't connect in your mind that it's how important it is. 
to be like visible and out in the community kind of thing. It was a really great experience to put together this concert. And, uh, you know, I definitely will continue the search to find interesting pieces and, and continue this kind of, uh, of activity. I, I think it's really important. Well, the concert that you curated was, it was fantastic. Well, great territorial choices and not just me. Well, <laughs> thank you for saying so. No, uh, I'm serious though. It really was really extremely well done. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Well, we're getting close to time here, so I'd like to move to our closing segment. And I always like to close the show by getting your take on or advice about how one lives and sustains a creative life. Uh, it's a really interesting question. And it's one that I've <laughs> that I've said recently to uh, to composers that I know who sometimes have been like I can see people getting frustrated because it's an extremely hard um, it's an extremely hard uh, job, but also has the potential to be infinitely rewarding as well. Um, so one thing that I've been saying lately is that it's not just survival of the fittest; it's survival of the longest. <laughs> So if you're able to survive being a composer for the long, then eventually, you know, things will, I don't know. Well, I, it, no, it makes perfect sense what you're saying. I, I think it's, I think it's probably true in many of the arts that if you just stick to it long enough, you know, the competition starts to thin out on it at a certain level. I, I remember this poet that I had on the show, Patrick Phillips, and he said something very similar to that effect. Like, you know, if you just keep at it and you just keep chipping away at it year after year, day after day, you know, eventually you find that you're still doing it. And, you know, some of the the competition that you had early on is, you know, doing something else. And, and here you are still doing whatever it is for him. It was poetry. But but I think you're onto something with that yeah. idea. It's definitely it's it's something that uh, I other I find it hard to articulate, but it's also kind of like I think composition or or really any art form is kind of like it's a really it's a long term investment, <laughs> you know, it's one that you don't always see the results right away uh, on things. So it's even if you you know even when you write a piece, it's most of the time it's not performed until months later, right? And you might not be recognized in any real way for that piece until a decade later. Like, who knows? So I think it has to be one of those cases where you want to be, you do what you can to survive in, in the world, but to be patient with yourself that uh, this, is your, this is your important long-term project that you keep working on uh, forever and you just, it just keeps getting better bit by bit. Yeah, it, it, it sort of reminds me of a, a story that Mark Applebaum told when I had him on the show, which I would just share briefly here before we end, because it, it, it ties perfectly in with, with what you were saying. And, and if people haven't listened to the show, uh, the Mark Applebaum show, then, uh, then this will be new. <laughs> and then go back and listen to the Mark Applebaum show because <laughs> I work really hard on these things. Uh, okay, <clears throat> he said, uh, 
that uh, you know some people work really hard at their thing they've got this vision this weird idiosyncratic artistic idea that they want to pursue they work at it tirelessly day in day out year in year out decade after decade they make this amazing you know create this body of work and they do this in total obscurity nobody notices them they die centuries go by millennia maybe go by the entire work is lost to the sands of time he says this is an, a life and this is a life in art that's worth living and then and then there's like three different levels to this so the next one you know the same the, this person works year in year out they develop their thing yada yada same kind of stuff nobody notices they die someone finds it wow this is really cool that look what this person did and now we are the beneficiaries of this person having pursued this their art mm -hmm. and he says this is a life and art worth living and and another one so this this artist that pursues their their thing year in year out decade after decade in the twilight years of their life society figures out what they're doing and celebrates them maybe they get retrospectives or they win the macarthur genius prize or whatever you know some they win awards and, and honors this is a life and art worth living for a very, very few people, they work at their thing year in, year out somewhere, maybe in mid-career. They actually have a career. Maybe they're actually making a living from doing their art. And their people celebrate them and know them and pay them, you know, vast sums of money for what they do. He says, this is a life in art worth living. But he's in the end, he says... You're not a candidate for any of these outcomes, all of which are perfectly acceptable unless you have your thing, your thing that you're obsessed with, your idiosyncratic ideas, what you're doing, exploring it, tirelessly working at it. If you don't have that, then none of these outcomes are possible. And so I feel like that, that, that story that he told uh, kind of ties in with what you're what what you're saying and I felt like I should I should share that story again because it's such a great sentiment great one yeah no it's a great one absolutely um, I think it, it's a it's a hard job and composers in general are, are pretty pretty hard on themselves which makes it <laughs> which makes it hard but then the moments where you really do get to um, enjoy the fruits of your labors, even if it's only, you know, one, one brief, amazing, radiant performance, those moments just make everything else, uh, just seem completely worth it. Great. Monica, is there anything else that you'd like to say? No, just thanks so much for having me on the show. I'm a big fan of uh, standing in the stream and, uh, I think you're doing a great job and I will continue to subscribe. All right. Thank you so much for being here. It was great to talk to you. And with that, we conclude this episode of Standing in the Stream, Conversations with Creatives. Again, I'm your host, John Lane. You can follow me on Twitter, at ThatJohnLane. You can find the show links and show notes on my website, john-lane.com, and follow the show on Facebook. Simply search for Standing in the Stream. Thanks to Danny Clay for our theme music. You can find him online at dclaymusic.com. I'll be back next time for more conversations with creatives. Thanks for listening. <laughs>